The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. I've always thought about what the world might be like in the future, but once I became a parent, my thinking started to shift. Now, a couple times a month, I try to imagine what the world might look like when my son is my age. And let me tell you, it's always a stressful thing to consider. Because I think the world is moving in the wrong direction. Growing up, I felt like I could mostly depend upon consistent temperatures from season to season. I knew August would be hot and humid. January would be cold icy and windy, and April would go from sweater weather to swimsuit weather and back again more times than I could count. That predictability bred comfort and allowed me to plan for my life. But with every passing year, it goes out the window. Climate change is impacting our weather patterns, and it's frankly terrifying to me. Wildfire season is becoming more intense. Unprecedented floods are hitting random parts of the world, and every year seems to be the hottest year on record. We've got droughts that are becoming more common and entire localities are sinking below sea level slowly. Hurricanes and tornadoes are ripping through towns and cities with increasing frequency and ferocity. And year after year, there are worsening stories of devastation and catastrophe. People are losing their homes, careers, pets, and even their lives, all while we continue to do the same things that have caused the problems in the first place. Meanwhile, programs like the Green New Deal are sacrificed at the altar of political expediency and the theologies that fostered the arrogant attitudes towards the earth are still running rampant in churches and communities. Make it make sense, Jesus. Just make it make sense for once. As you can tell, I am not optimistic about the world my child will live in when he's 33. Luckily, There are many brilliant minds wrestling with these problems and giving us some reasons to be hopeful despite the problematic outlook. We'll unpack why that is in today's episode. You're listening to episode 12 of the What Would It Take podcast. Today, we're asking the question, what would it take to save the planet? Keep listening to find out. Let's take a moment and recap the state of the planet right now. Two years ago, wildfires engulfed Australia. Yes, basically the entire country of Australia was up in flames. Over a nine-month period from June of 2019 to March of 2020, over 72,000 square acres of land were torched, 3,500 homes were destroyed, and 34 people died. In August of 2021, Severe storms and flooding hit the small town of Waverly, Tennessee, leaving 21 people dead, and weeks later, another 20 were still missing. In New York City in 2021, seven inches of rain fell over a period of hours in late August, causing some folks to drown in their own basements, and this was just days after Hurricane Ida left millions of people in the Gulf without power. In February of last year, A massive winter storm in Texas left 4.5 million people without electricity or power, and many others faced astronomical electric bills. I could also talk about the fires in Turkey or Siberia, the drought in South Africa, 
or the flooding in Europe, but we don't have time in this episode to cover all of the extreme weather events that climate change is creating. I mean, that human activity is creating. Outside of the physical devastation that these weather events cause, we also have to remember that there are other ramifications. See, it's not just that we have to worry about the physical impact of a large storm ripping through our area or a wildfire destroying the town next to us. No, we've also got to be thinking about the tangential effects of climate change, such as food shortages and general resource scarcity, which can lead to violent conflict and civil unrest. I'm talking about the potential increase in the frequency of pandemics, job loss, and bankruptcy. Above all, more people are going to die. More children are going to die. There's just no other way to put it. Global temperatures are still rising, meaning things are only going to get worse unless drastic changes are made. There's a lot at stake. Yes, the ice caps are melting. Yes, sea levels are rising. Yes, abnormal weather patterns are increasing. But that means that the lives of everyday people, people you know, people you love, are at risk of being affected, maybe even destroyed or lost. We've got to do something about that. But what can we do and why should we do it? I'll tackle the second question first. I grew up with the theology of dominion. Now, I don't know if that's really what it's called, but that's what I'm going to call it for the purposes of this episode. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, that verse was central to this theology of dominion, as I'm calling it. And as I understood it, it meant that we kind of got to do what we wanted as it pertains to wildlife and the earth. And there are some really practical implications for that. Can we go hunting? Yep. What about clearing forests? Go for it. Polluting the oceans? Not the best idea, but hey, we're on top of the food chain, so if it helps humans, why not? See, there was, and I think still is for many folks, an acceptance of this natural hierarchy, and it went unquestioned for a while in me. If humans were at the top of the food chain and in charge, we had every right to hunt and fish, we had every right to landscape our yards and eliminate anything we deemed as unnecessary, pesky, or problematic to our existence. We had every right to do what we saw fit with nature because God said so. We were put in charge. As you're probably aware, there are indeed other ways to understand that verse within its context, and when you put it in conversation with other passages and teachings, you might just come away with a very different understanding and theological viewpoint. Take Matthew 6.26, for instance. It says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Now, some folks hear this verse and assume it justifies this hierarchy of dominion or creation that I'm talking about. But I don't think so. Taken in context, Jesus is making the argument that God clearly cares enough about the birds that they don't have to plan or save for their next meal. God has set things up so that they always have access to what they need when they need it because he cares for them. And if God cares for the birds in that way, God will also care for you. See, it's not a story about human dominion, but about God's care, grace, and provision. 
And therein lies the crux of the shift that we need to make theologically. We need to understand that creation isn't about dominion, hierarchy, and dominance. Central to creation, central to life, central to the divine is care, grace, and collective provision. Now, I'm going to take this a step further that might make some of y'all uncomfortable. But if we truly understood our place within creation, then we'd recognize that it is natural for ants to be in our homes. See, we cleared away space they would normally occupy, space that was once wild and free and full of life. We cleared it out to build our homes. The ants are going where they have always gone, seeking out the things they've always sought and doing what they've always done. But we changed their habitat and disrupted the ecosystem. Yet we act like they are the ones intruding into our space when, in fact, it's the other way around. Is it then immoral or unethical to kill ants when we're the ones who've intruded? What about mice or spiders or flies? Does the same not apply to them? Are they not also living creatures created by God? Did God ever say that their lives were not worth protecting and caring for? The answer is no, in case you're curious. God never said that. So if we operate from a belief that all of creation, and I mean all of creation, is worth being cared for, we have to change the ways that we live. Our actions impact so many other creatures and organisms. The things that we throw away end up in landfills, which pollute the ground and eventually even the groundwater. What doesn't end up in a landfill often finds its way into the ocean and impacts marine life, poisoning, trapping, or even killing animals thousands of miles away from us. The chemicals we use on our bodies, in our yards, or in our vehicles end up flushed down our drains or washed away in the rain. And those that haven't filtered out also end up in streams and rivers, which again increase pollution and harms wildlife. It can even end up back in our own drinking water and cause health problems for other people. And the modes of transportation that we use emit carbon dioxide, which contributes to the global temperature increases, adds to air pollution in cities, and has harmful effects on some plant and animal species. It can even lead to stunted plant growth, changing biodiversity and ecosystems, and negatively impacting reproduction. The point I'm trying to make in a very long-winded way is that we are not as separate as we think we are from the rest of creation. If we look at the Hebrew creation narratives in Genesis, we see an emphasis on unity and interconnectedness that exists alongside the charge to fill the earth. The inclusive Bible translates the charge of Genesis 1.28 like this. Bear fruit, increase your numbers, and fill the earth, and be responsible for it. Watch over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things on the earth. If our responsibility is to watch over, care for, or take care of all the living things on the earth, in the air, or in the water, then we've got to admit that we have failed abysmally up to this point. And I personally feel a deep connection to the rest of creation. I won't speak for you, but I feel a connection that increases the older I get. I remember having conversations with my dad and hearing that same evolution of understanding take place within him as he aged. See, the older he got, the less he wanted to go out and hunt. And he used to be a pretty avid hunter, so much so that his name is in the Indiana record book somewhere. 
But as he got into his 50s, he told me that he found himself just wanting to go out and watch the deer and admire the beauty of God's creation. See, I think there's a deep wisdom in that evolution that my dad was speaking about. Somehow, someway, Western Christian spirituality has become divorced from the deep interconnectedness of creation. We've forgotten how magically and marvelously intertwined we are with everything else that exists. And I believe we're energetically and materially bound together. What difference is there really in the matter and the energy within me and the matter and the energy within the oak trees that lie outside my office or the squirrels that bound through the snow in January? I don't think there's much difference at all. And so if humans aren't inherently designed and destined to govern over and dominate all of creation, then we've got to be held accountable for our choices and actions. Moreover, if we aren't automatically at the top of the food chain because God said so, then it means we need to rethink our relationship to everything. Whales, lions, tigers, ants, mosquitoes, foxes, trees, plankton, spinach, you get it, everything. If all of life and all of creation has the same right to survive and thrive as we do, then we've got to own our sins and repent. Repentance has an economic and political cost that many of us just aren't willing to pay. And I argue that true repentance, gospel-induced repentance, requires a lifestyle shift that's a challenge for us all. So now that you're sufficiently convicted, you're probably wondering what we can do about this. Well, before I jump into specifics, let me just say that I'm going to give you a very broad strokes overview here. There are a ton of great resources, including other podcasts that you can check out in the show notes for a much more thorough dive into this topic. Having said that, here are some things we can do to begin to make change. We need to get to 100% zero carbon emissions in the United States by 2035. President Biden has set this as a goal, and it's surprisingly achievable. And, And this goal simply means that all of the electricity that we're using in the U.S. is clean, or in other words, produces zero greenhouse gas emissions. And that seems like a heavy lift, but... We're currently operating at over 30% right now, and with existing technologies, we can get to 90% before 2035, which means this goal is actually achievable with a little sacrifice and some political courage. Moreover, this shift would not only help us slow down global temperature increases, but it would also save consumers money and create up to 1 million good-paying jobs before 2030. So there's some real economic benefits to doing this. We can also utilize alternatives to common materials like refrigerants and cement. There are technologies out there that would allow us to find other ways to refrigerate our food or do building projects that are more eco-friendly, potentially biodegradable, and most importantly, don't impact global carbon emissions. We can also increase both personal and industrial level composting, which would result in a significant decrease in the release of the greenhouse gas methane. We could direct more resources to educating young girls and women. Now, this may seem a little out of pocket or even counterintuitive, but it isn't. According to Project Drawdown, educated girls have higher wages and greater upward mobility contributing to economic growth. Higher education levels also mean that the rates of maternal mortality drop, as do the rates of infant mortality. And 
Education lays the foundation for women and their families to build more vibrant communities and lives. And it's one of the most powerful tools available for avoiding emissions by curbing population growth. So there are tons of reasons why increasing access to education for girls and women can actually help us bring our global emissions levels down. And more importantly, it just improves their lives and improves the lives of families and communities. And it's just the right thing to do. So can we just do it already? Now, I've only listed four potential things that we can do to fight climate change by reducing global emissions, but there are literally tens, if not hundreds of ways to achieve this goal. And we're going to need to do most of them, if not all of them. So I know we've just begun to scratch the surface of potential solutions. And if you want to learn more, I highly recommend the How to Save the Planet podcast. They tackle big picture topics like a zero emission electricity grid and more practical matters like how to talk to family members about climate change. They also have an entire Google document of recommended actions you can take to play your part. So if this episode has left you hungry for more ways to make an impact, click on the recommended actions link in the show notes and see what you can do. I want to believe that my son will be able to visit national forests or soak in the beauty of creation. And I want to think that he'll have the chance to travel the world without having to plan for or think too much about natural disasters. I'd like to trust that he'll never have to lose a family member or even his own life due to the effects of climate change. But most days, it's hard for me to have that level of faith. And maybe you're in the same boat. Luckily, as we have found out today, a lot of bright people have been wrestling with solutions to this topic. So everything isn't lost, at least not yet. And hopefully it won't be. But our time to act is quickly diminishing. If our charge from the divine is to recognize our unity with creation and watch over it with care, then we've largely failed. The good news of the gospel is that there can always be repentance. So let's accept that good news, repent, and become the stewards of creation that we know we can be. Thank you for listening to the What Would It Take podcast. To view the source material for this episode, check out the show notes. If you'd like to find more great content from Anabaptist World, visit anabaptistworld.org. And if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as Benjamin J. Tapper. Mm-hmm.